Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Radical. Fundamental Principles of Freedom. Rational self-interest and individual rights. This is the Yaron Brook Show. All right, welcome everybody to Yaron Brook Show on Friday night. Uh, hope you're ready for the weekend. It's right here. Um, and the news continues. Things just don't slow down these days. There's, there's just a barrage of stuff happening. None of it good these days. T- tomorrow, by the way, I'm, I'm going to be talking to um, um, Matt Ridley, uh, who is the author of the new book on uh, how innovation works, uh, which is an excellent book. I, I've read it. I interviewed him about a month and a half ago, and, and uh, he, he, uh, he agreed to come on again. A uh, lot to talk about. And uh, that'll be a positive show. Ain't going to be positive today, I promise you that. But tomorrow will be a positive show. We'll talk about innovation. We'll also talk about coronavirus. Uh, as I said yesterday, he is an expert on uh, the science uh, and uh, writes a lot about the science and is a science writer with a PhD in biology. And we will talk about coronavirus, about um, vaccines, about treatment, about, uh, you know, how bad is it, was it, will it be? So don't miss that. It's going to be a great show. That'll be tomorrow at 12 p.m. East Coast time. I apologize for all of you West Coasters who want to sleep in tomorrow. You're going to have to get up early. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're going to do today. Today we're going to cover a few items from the news, all from the world of what's going on, um, what's going on in America today within the White House in the newsrooms or in the streets of America. And uh, we are going to start with uh, the New York Times, right? The New York Times, the uh, what used to be the standard of great journalism, what used to be the standard of, of, of journalism, for, for journalism in America. It was always, I mean, Ayn Rand wrote about the New York Times. It was always... It was always um, leftist. It was always tilted left. It's only tilted left more over the years, uh, but it has always uh, had a left bias. But God, is it getting ridiculous. It really is getting ridiculous. So here's the story. So basically a couple of, uh, on Thursday, yesterday, 
They published online an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. An op-ed, by the way, that I hated. An op-ed that I think is, is terrible. It called for the president to deploy American troops in the streets to crush the, the, the protests uh, in the guise that it's all about, it's all riots and it's all Antifa and so on. Uh, you know, disagree with Tom Cotton on this fundamentally. Uh, disagree with the president of the United States on this fundamentally. Tom Cotton more generally is not one of the good guys in the Senate. Uh, and um, anyway, the, the New York Times published this op-ed because the New York Times has a history and a tradition of publishing op-eds from people they disagree with. And we know, we know that uh, they often publish conservatives. They often publish all kinds. And we know the New York Times has a particular editorial perspective. And they often publish stories of, you know, uh, editorials from people they disagree. And they published Tom Cotton yesterday and fine. And I heard about the, the op-ed being published, and I said, ah, I hate Tom Cotton. It's terrible. This is going to be a terrible op-ed advocating for a policy that I despise. But then all hell broke loose at the New York Times. 800 staffers in the New York Times signed a letter condemning the newspaper for publishing this story, because this story was unthinkable. It was anti-everything anti they believe in. The New York Times should have never published it. It was filled, they say, with lies. Now, it was an editorial. And maybe, maybe these reporters should look at their news stories, talk about filled with lies or misrepresentations or distortions and perversions. But no, it was this editorial, an opinion piece, that they thought was unthinkable, that should be taken down, not printed, all because it presented a viewpoint that they view as abhorrent. A viewpoint, by the way, that the President of the United States, like him or hate him, and I happen to hate him, agrees with. So it's not a viewpoint so out of the mainstream. Obviously, a significant amount of Americans agree with Tom Cotton's view. And yet, it was too crazy for the New York Times, for these 800 reporters. The New York Times went into panic mode, uh, originally, the editorial staff defended the decision to publish the editorial. By the evening, it was decided that, oh, yes, it was a rushed editorial process. And uh, the uh, editorial board will be, you know, the, the editors of the newspaper didn't live up to their standards. And, um, you know, they, they, they uh, this is to quote... Uh, quote Mr. Salzberger, who I think is the publisher. Uh, let's see, Salzberger, who is Salzberger? Uh, the publisher. Salzberger is the publisher uh, who originally defended the publication. Then he says, no, 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 it was rushed. It was no good. And, he's, and then he says, uh, it doesn't mean that He says, quote, given that this is not the first lapse, the opinion department will also be taking several initial steps to reduce the likelihood of something like this happening again. He added that the opinions section would rethink op-eds generally for the social media age. In other words, the New York Times was already unbelievably biased. The editorial page in particular was unbelievably biased, although it does have a few uh, token conservatives that published it. Now it's going to be even more because even somebody defending the president won't be able to, won't be able to publish in the New York Times. They also decided that the New York Times would not publish the editorial, which was supposed to come out in print today. They decided not to publish it in print and keep it, so it's just on the website.
Mr. Bennett, who's Bennett? Bennett is, uh, let's see, uh, Bennett is the editorial page editor who in the beginning of the day defended the publication of the op-ed saying that he disagreed with Mr. Cotton's opinion but believed it was important to publish views that counter to his own. This, by the way, is a story in the New York Times. He said, uh, quote, it would undermine the integrity and independence of the New York Times if we only published views that editors like me agreed with, and it would betray what I think is our fundamental purpose, not to tell you what to think, but to help you think for yourself. By the evening, Mr. Bennett had retracted that statement. So pressure from 800 people, pressure from readers, pressure from their customers, basically caused them to withdraw. Now, I wouldn't be that upset if that were happening in a vacuum. But the fact is that, what are we now, in June? In February, I brought to your attention an op-ed that was published by the New York Times that I thought was abhorrent, disgusting, that they would even consider publishing an editorial like this. That editorial that was published in February, nobody objected. Not anybody on the staff of the New York Times objected to it. None of the readers objected. None of you, as far as I know, objected. I forgot to switch on lights, so one second. As far as I know, I might have been the only person who objected. And this was an editorial published by Sirakajin Sirajuddin Hakani. Some of you might remember this show. Now, Hakani happens to be the deputy emir of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Haqqani happens to be the head of the Haqqani network. It was a Taliban op-ed. It was a Haqqani network op-ed. It was, a ne- it was an op-ed written by an avowed enemy of the United States and a murderer with blood on his hands. Somebody who has ordered, ordered troops to go kill Americans, including suicide bombings. Somebody who when who is in league and has been in league for over a decade, you know, for decades, with Al-Qaeda. Someone who is sworn to murdering Americans. And yet, he wrote a piece in the New York Times with his name on it, saying, all the Taliban wants is peace. Peace. Now, I'm not going to do the whole shtick I did two months ago about this. You can go find the show if you want. Talk about an op-ed filled with lies, misinformation, distortion from a person who wants a theocracy in Iraq to subjugate women to the worst kind of laws possible. From a person who has American blood and Afghan, with no end to Afghan blood in his hands. Not a peep. No objection. Nobody cared. And, and again, not just nobody cared in the New York Times. Nobody cared. 
No other newspapers wrote articles about how horrible it was that the New York Times would let a Taliban. Of course, nobody in the Trump administration would say anything because the Trump administration is negotiating with this bastard for peace in Afghanistan with the Taliban, with our enemies. Because we know that peace deals with your enemies always work out great. Now, I know many of you are saying, oh, you're on. You're just discovering this about the New York Times. No, I've always known the New York Times is biased. I've known it for 40 years. Well, 40 years is an exaggeration. I've known it for 30-something years since I've lived in the United States. But the level, this kind of level of debauchery, of inconsistency, is a new low, particularly on the editorial page. Again, news, I know. I read a New York Times editorial, uh, a story I know to adjust for the bias. I still think, by the way, you wouldn't have journalism in America without uh, places like the New York Times and Washington Post because there would be no, nobody out there to... What happened? Something went black. Oh, it's back. Uh, there would be nobody there to actually go do investigative reporting and actually go out there and figure stuff out and report on it. So uh, as much as I hate the New York Times and much of what it does, it is a vital institution. And when I see the editorial page in the New York Times, which should have a lot more leeway, on the one hand, publish stuff that I think is despicable to publish. And on the other hand, stop publishing other stuff because it offends the political correct you know, snowflake mentality. It, it really is beyond the pale. And it's sad because the New York Times is a venerable institution, an important institution. And when the New York Times and the Washington Post goes, who remains to do journalism in America? What remains to do journalism in America? What remains just to bring what's going on in the world to us? How do we discover what's going on in the world? We become... Ignorant and blind, and 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 it's it's sad and horrific for all of us. So that's the New York Times and uh, the op-ed, Cotton op-ed. So Cotton was uh, defending in this. He was defending George Bush, George Bush, uh, Donald Trump's policy with regard to bringing the military into. Uh, into American cities to crush the, um, I was going to say insurgency, but actually if it was the Taliban, it was an insurgency, we wouldn't crush them. But when it comes to our own people and when it's, it comes to police action, yeah, we need the military to crush them. But anyway, I don't want to get into the, the actual view. Um, what's interesting is that Donald Trump presented this view of we need to bring in the military we need to use the, uh, uh, what is it, the uh, Insurrection Act in order, to, uh, in order to bring the military into the cities and to stop the violence associated with this, uh, the rioting, uh, but also to stop the, the demonstrations because there's no way you can separate out the two, particularly not the military. The military is not built to separate out, oh, you're just a demonstrator, oh, you're a writer, you're a demonstrator, you're a writer. I'll shoot. No, I'm not allowed to shoot because, you know, it's, it's the homeland. So what is the military exactly supposed to do? Blow up buildings? Use grenades? Miss, what, what are they going to do? Anyway, 
Trump wanted to be in the military. And uh, General Mathis, and let me remind you who General Mathis is. He, he was a commander of, of, of forces in, in Iraq uh, during the insurgency. He was a decorated general. Uh, when, uh, when Trump was looking for Secretary of Defense, uh, when Mathis was chosen, everybody was like, ooh, wow, this is a real guy. This is the real thing. Now, I'll also remind you, and you can go back and check the shows. This is in 2016. Uh, you can find the show. I've never been impressed with Mathis. I think Mathis is of a generation of wimps. Mathis is of a generation of generals who don't believe in winning wars. He might be called Mad Dog Mathis, but I would call him Snowflake Mathis for his policy advice and for the way he executed the war in Iraq. He actually lost the war in Iraq. He lost the insurgency in Iraq. He is no great general. He is no Patton. He is no MacArthur. He is no uh, Sherman. He is one of the modern generation with Petraeus of generals who are you know, afraid to actually win and certainly afraid to do anything that would suggest winning. He is a general brought up on the just war theory practice. I was never impressed by Mathis. Let's be very clear. Math, Mattis, not Mathis, okay. Mattis, sorry, Mattis. But everybody else was impressed. Oh, the right loved him. Mad Dog Mattis, he was the hero of the right. When he came in, I got, when I criticized him, I was like, whoa, you can't criticize this guy. He's a hero. He's this legend of generals. He is the epitome of everything good. And for the whole time he was in the White House, I would hear things like, oh, yeah, Matt, Matt, Mattis supports Trump. And if Mattis supports Trump, Trump must be good because Mattis is a real adult. He's a real human being. Mattis is amazing, right? No end to the compliments to how good Mattis actually was. And then, and then, Mattis published a public statement denouncing the president of the United States, denouncing Donald Trump. Well, after he had left his post, uh, left his post after disagreeing with Trump about Syria, but about a lot of things. We'll never, you know, hopefully one day we'll know the truth about what happened there, but about a lot of different things. And Mattis wrote the scathing, scathing attack on Trump, not just on his decision, uh, on his decision to send troops or to advocate for troops going in uh, to break up the demonstrations. But more than that, he's got a, a line here, uh, we are witnessing the consequence of three years. Uh, no, let's start earlier. Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, nor does he even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. I think all of that's true, by the way. We are witnessing the consequence of three years of, a de- of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequence of three years without mature leadership. That, to me, is the key line. Without mature leadership, he's calling Trump immature, which is pure. Right on. 100% correct. We're witnessing the consequence of three years without mature leadership. We can unite without him, drawing on the strength inherent in our civil society. Anyway, this is a scathing review of Trump. It doesn't give a lot of examples. It's not there to be an essay. And, you know, I think, I think there's a certain proprietary of he's not going to reveal secrets of what happened in the White House when he was there. He's not going to give examples. He's just going to say, this is my experience of Donald Trump.
Now, this is the decorated general that the right loved, loved. And wow, did they turn on him. Within minutes of this release, I was watching Fox. Immediately, oh, eh, this is not big, big of a deal in terms of general. Eh, never really impressed by him. <laughs> Go back and watch Fox when Trump announced that he was going to be secretary uh, uh, of defense. <laughs> they, you know, they love this guy. Now, eh, it's no big deal. Now, he's political. If he was political, why did he agree to become Trump's secretary of defense? If he's a lefty, if he's a Democrat, why did he do that? I mean, Mathis hasn't tried to curry favor with the deep state or the liberal media. I mean, if you want to do that, why become Trump, of all people, Secretary of State? And when he left, he tried not to say anything. He did a book tour. And in that book tour, refused to denounce the president. And journalists begged him to. I mean, he knows a lot of dirt. A lot of dirt. He was in the White House for three years. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And he didn't do it. And he didn't do it. And then he was fed up and he finally spoke up. And now... Nobody is questioning, well, maybe Trump's not as good as I thought he was. Here's, a, here's the guy who I thought was an adult in a room telling me Trump is immature. You know, maybe I should think about it. No. No. Immediately, they go on the offensive. Immediately, he is the bad guy. Immediately. They come to the defense of Trump. And I've talked about this many times on the show, but this is the mentality of Trump supporters, which is now dominates Fox and it dominates the Republican administration, it dominates Republican senators. Very few senators questioned this. All of them went on the offensive against Mathis. Now, again, I'm not a fan of Mathis's. I don't think he should have taken the job of being Trump's defense secretary. I wouldn't have, not that anybody would ask me. But he did. And they loved him for a while. But now we're in a position... Where the right, the mainstream Republican right, not just some wacky fringe, but the mainstream Republican right, including many of my listeners, whatever Trump does, whatever Trump says, no matter what depravities he indulges in, no matter what his, it reflects about his moral character, no matter who he sleeps with, no matter who, who he 
you know, hangs out with, and no matter what he says. The real outrage for all these people is that anybody criticizes him, that anybody has a problem with him, that anybody dares to challenge him. Mathis is not, by the way, the only general to come out. A number of generals have come out. It doesn't matter. They're all being condemned. The Republican Party that used to be very positive about its generals and very supportive of generals and very respectful of generals, no more. That respect is gone. Now, maybe that respect should have never been there. But that respect now is gone. And that tells you something about the state of the rights in America today. It tells you something about the state of thinking, of thinking in the United States. The fact that Donald Trump, the, the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, lies every hour. And he's not embarrassed by that fact. And nobody denies that fact. The fact that that doesn't bother anybody. That, that's fine with the right. That's fine with the Republicans. That's fine with the supporters. But God forbid you criticize Trump. God forbid you raise an issue with, about Trump. God forbid you claim Trump maybe is somebody claims Trump is lying, even though you know he's lying. It's unacceptable to criticize Trump. It's impossible. It's the right is, you know, we'll talk more about the right in the weeks to come. But the right is dead. The right is value-less, content-less. And, of course, the, the left is completely depraved. I'll give you one other example of kind of the depravity. Oops, I closed the window. Of the craziness, of the insanity that's going on. So, I don't know if you remember, but I kind of remember... It's probably about, I don't know, five, six days ago, maybe, maybe seven, eight, but not that long ago. We were told we had to stay home. We were told that if we went out, we should keep six feet apart and we should wear masks. We were told that COVID would kill us. And if it didn't kill us now, if, if we didn't follow the instructions, COVID would kill us. We were told... That the most important thing we can do to save old people out there, even if it didn't affect young people, was stay home so we didn't infect old people. I never understood quite how me staying home helped old people. But anyway, that was the story. I, I got into lots of arguments with people about this. Yeah, the argument was I would infect some, somebody else who would infect somebody else who would infect an old person. I said, well, isolate old people. Don't let them engage with me and this other person, this other person, and this other person. But that logic didn't seem to work. It was inevitable that if I went outside, old people were going to die. That was the story we were told. It didn't, matter. it didn't matter that I wasn't worried about getting COVID. I I'd say this all the time. I'm not worried about getting COVID. I'm young, healthy. Well, not so young, actually. Look at my hair. I used to be young. <laughs> used to be young. But I'm healthy. I'm not worried about getting COVID. I think I'll do fine. I, I, for all I know, I already had it. But they said, no, no, no. It's not about you, you're on. If you go outside, you'll hurt other people. All, and I say, I'd say, but only old people really get 
suffer from this. Oh, no, no. But it will get to old people. I said, how if you isolate them? No, no, no. You can't. You can't control it. So I was told to stay home, as all of you were. And sometimes I followed orders and sometimes I did not. And we were told that there was going to be a second wave. And thousands of Americans, tens of thousands of Americans, were at risk of dying from COVID because there might be a second wave. And not only that, think about the economy. Think about the danger, the economic danger of a second wave, we were told. So we had to crush it now. We had to stay home now. We couldn't go outside. If, well, we could go outside, but six feet away. And, and, and not for too long. And not too far from your building. And not to the beach. And not over there. And not... We had guidelines. Take your temperature and wear a mask and do this and that. And your store can't open and that store can't open and businesses can't do this, right? And then came the truly horrific killing in Minnesota. An act of real police brutality. And there were demonstrations. And demonstrations... Qua demonstrations, even though I don't like demonstrations, valid, people upset, people reflecting that. And put aside the rioting and put aside all of that. Okay, so at first people said, well, demonstrations, we're going to pass on the COVID because, you know, it's just a couple of days, it's an emergency, people have to do this. But it's been a week. And nobody in the media, nobody in the healthcare community, nobody mentions social distancing anymore. Nobody mentions masks. Nobody cares. Thousands of people out in the streets. Thousands of people out in the streets and all over the country demonstrating. And the COVID thing is out the window. Nobody cares. It's as if it's irrelevant. Now, I understand why people want to demonstrate. But what I don't understand is where the experts telling us that this is going to kill old people. Where are all the people saying, wait a minute, you're demonstrating the death of one, but you're going to kill a lot of people. Where are the experts telling us that if this continues, we're going to get a second wave because now the virus is strong among us and spreading rapidly. Where's the hysteria that was just there like 10 days ago? You know, when, when Georgia opened up and when Texas opened up, I mean, some people went ballistic. They went insane. And now, the entire United States is open up if you're a demonstrator. Not, God forbid, if you're actually a storekeeper or, or, or a business or a restaurant. But if you're a demonstrator, social distancing rules don't apply. Masks don't apply. Do whatever. And the public health consequences, who cares? Nobody cares. Now, there are a number of options here. And, and by the way, healthcare officials are justifying this. So Jennifer Nuzzo, some, I guess, epidemiologist, she says we should always evaluate the risk and benefits of efforts to control the virus. In the, where were the risk and benefits when they shut down the economy, destroyed the livelihoods of millions of Americans, put 20-something million people in unemployment? Where were the risk and benefits considered then? Who considered them exactly? But now, when it's a political cause she believes in, suddenly we have to take into account risk and benefits. 
racism is a true, horrific idea and, and this manifest in our society. Okay, can we deal with it after this crisis? Or if there's no crisis, we can deal with it now. But you can't have it both ways. Either there's a crisis or there's no crisis. She writes, in this moment, the public health risk of not protesting to demand, uh, uh, of not protesting to demand an end of systemic racism greatly exceeds the harms of the virus. I'm sorry, that's just unbelievable to me. Again, livelihood of people doesn't matter. But protesting systemic racism, we'll get to the, what the protests are actually going to achieve in a minute. But protesting systemic racism, that's, that's much more important. And if old people have to die for that, if old people have to die for that, if our hospitals get overwhelmed for that, who cares? Now, maybe she thinks no old people are going to die. If some people think that, if, if she thinks that no old people are going to die, if she thinks there's not going to be a second wave, if she thinks hospitals are not going to get overwhelmed, then she has been freaking lying to us all these months. Because that's what we've been told. That's what they used to justify locking us up at home. These lockups are based on the idea that that's what happens when you disregard social distancing. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? to the trust the American people have in doctors, in epidemiologists, in public health officials. If these protests happen and nobody gets infected, or nobody gets infected particularly badly and nobody dies and not a lot of people die from it. I mean, we're never going to trust these people again. We're going to continue to hate the experts. That's going to play right into Trump's hands, by the way. And we're never going to trust them again. And when the next pandemic happens, maybe it's an even worse pandemic, nobody will pay attention to them. On the other hand, what's going to happen if they were right before? By the way, I think that's going to happen. I think, I think it's going to be no big deal, these protests and, and COVID. But what if people do die? What are they going to say then? On whose hands is that blood? Dr. Tom Frieden says the threat to COVID control from protesting outside is tiny compared to the threat to COVID control created when government acts in ways that lose community trust. No, you are losing community trust by saying this. People can protest peacefully and work together to stop COVID. Violence harms public health. No question. But if they're not socially distancing, if they're not wearing masks, then how are they working to control COVID together. This is what destroys public trust. If Trump actually gets a boost in the ratings from this, it's going to be these people who cause that. And no matter what happens, if it turns out that COVID is not as infectious as they claimed all those months and these people stay healthy, then they fooled us and destroyed the livelihood of millions of people as a consequence and took our economy backwards significantly. And if something does happen, then these people's justification for the demonstrations in spite, in spite of COVID puts the blood of those people who die on their hands. 
You can't have it always. You can't have your cakes and eat them too. You can't have socially distancing except when politically it's the right thing to do not to socially distance right now. Now, I agree that it's probably not very infectious outside. But then why were we limited to go to parks? Why can we still not go fully to the beach? Why does the media still ridicule it when beaches are packed? Streets are packed much more than the beaches are with demonstrators. It's just, it's just unbelievable to me. The, the fact that people don't care about facts, they don't care about reality, they don't care about lives. You know, these demonstrations are supposed to be our lives. They don't care about lives. They care about being politically correct. These are doctors, for God's sake. Doctors. And if it's true that we're not going to get the virus outdoors, then why, oh why, have they used authoritarian means to keep us indoors? all these months, for two months. And the doctors and the media, oh, no, 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 this is required. We can't have you outdoors. And American people go along with it. American people say nothing. American people do nothing. And this brings me to the final segment of my monologue, triad, whatever you want to call it. Where do we go from here? I mean, this country is in such a mess right now. It's such a mess. You want me to turn the input down? I'm yelling too much. Okay, I'll turn it down. Let me know if that's better. The country is in a complete mess, a complete disaster. We had a lockdown for a virus that kills a lot of people, but kills only a select group of people, old people, people who are very sick. And yet we locked down the entire country almost. We locked down you know, regions of the country where there was no coronavirus or very little coronavirus and no deaths or very few deaths. It's over peaking because I was yelling. Is this value better? Is it less peaking now? Because I was yelling, and I apologize. One of these days, I'll figure out my setup here because I've got preamps and and uh, and sound boards and everything. You know, if there's an audio expert out there who would be agree to uh, consult me, I could take pictures of all of the equipment, and he could tell me how to do the settings. That would be great, so that it doesn't peak. So we were told to lock down. And, and, and what's amazing about this is the American people said, yes, sir. We just accepted the lockdown. And you stuck a bunch of us, 300 million of us, stuck us home with very little ability to go outside and to do stuff and to act. And, and, and many of us couldn't work. 
and the energy and frustration of all of that just accumulated over the, over the weeks. And our politicians were blasé about the whole thing. And yes, I understand that in New York it got really, really bad. Of course it got really, really bad because the Trump administration completely blew this at the beginning. Because Como and de Blasio completely blew this in the middle. Because our politicians, our public health officials, completely and utterly failed us. None of this country should have been locked up. None of this country needed to be locked up. But they, the people we trust, the people we rely on, failed us. But we just went along. And yeah, there were a few demonstrations here and there, but disrespectful demonstrations, and many of the demonstrations motivated by all kinds of conspiracy theory nonsense. There was no rational opposition. There was a wacky right and the rest of us. The rest of the people just accepting what their leaders tell them to do and what the media, the media was awful. The media just created hysteria, created fear. Hey guys, stop misrepresenting my views, please, in the chat. You want to do something on just war theory, we'll do something on just four three. But some of you should just stop talking about it because you don't know what you're talking about and you don't know my views. You don't understand them if you've read them. So just stop saying Iran thinks this when you don't know what I think. Yes, I hate Mattis. I hate Mattis. I hate just war theory. I hate the way we fight wars. But some of the stuff that's attributed to me on this chat is just plain wrong. So just don't do it. If you're not sure what I say or you don't completely understand it, then just leave it alone. Right. Yeah, that's me. I think there was this flat. <laughs> the trolls are out on, on the chat today. One thing that the coronavirus illustrated really well is the extent to which left and right authoritarian and the extent to which conspiracy theories, both on left and right, are prevalent and conspiracy theories have become almost mainstream. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then came this brutal killing in Minneapolis. And it brought to mind the police brutality that we have seen now that everybody carries phones and everybody carries cameras with them. We are now seeing the kind of police brutality that I don't think anybody, any of us really imagined existed. But over the last five, six, seven years, we've seen it because it's been on camera, it's been filmed. And we're reminded that the authorities, not just at the political level, are corrupt, 
But we have, at least to some extent, uh, a corrupt police force. A police force that chases down nonviolent crimes, that uses violent methods to address nonviolent crimes, and a police force that often kills unarmed, unarmed people. You know, the last, since 2015, 321 unarmed individuals have been killed by the police. Now, I don't know if that's a lot or little. It doesn't seem like a lot to me, but it's, it's, it's 321 individuals who are dead. And that should cause us to be upset. The police are an unbelievably important function in any world. I mean, one of the things that upsets me right now about what the left is demanding is that we defund the police. We get rid of the police. I mean, they've all become anarchists, right? You know, I'm sure the anarcho-capitalists love this. No police, yay, well, the private police forces. No, that's called anarchy, and it's called bloodshed in the streets, and it's called mayhem and destruction. The last thing we need is no police. But that's what the protesters are calling for. We need police. But we need police who are guided by good law by objective law, but a law that is protective of individual rights, of life and property. We need a police force that is honest. We need a police force that is well-trained. Well-trained. I mean, this is, this is 101. How to restrain a suspect. How to restrain a suspect without putting his life in danger, particularly for a nonviolent crime. Forging a $20 bill, maybe. Using a forged $20 bill. Why would, you, why would you use lethal force or potentially lethal force on somebody who just, you know, committed fraud? You should go to jail for fraud. But you don't use lethal force for fraud. Why can't our police be trained? Why can't our police be in physical enough shape, good enough shape, to manage to handle... Suspects, without being so afraid as to have to kill them. And I think a lot of policemen shoot because they're afraid. And I think that's a lack of training. Why can't we come in a, in a, in a, in a creative society like ours, why can't we come up with means to, to, to allow the police to do their job without putting all the, of us at risk of some rogue policeman doing something horrific? And I think the reason is the will is not there. And, and there's a political establishment within the police that doesn't want it to happen. Particularly um, the police unions, which are there to protect the policemen no matter what they do. So very few policemen are actually prosecuted for crimes that they actually do commit. So all of that is true. And... We've known about this for years since we've started filming these things. And nobody's done anything about it. So I understand the anger of those who want to demonstrate. I understand the anger of those out in the streets. Not all of them, because some of them are thugs and some of them are just rioters. And some of them uh, just want to tear the system down, no matter what the system is. Some of them want to just destroy capitalism. They don't advocate for anything. But there's a majority, I believe, that are truly disturbed by the kind of violence inflicted on civilians by the police. Now, again, I, I think there's a lack of respect for the 
heroic actions of the police in protecting property and lives on a day-to-day basis. But there should be anger. The police carry a gun. And with that gun, they carry massive responsibility. Massive responsibility. And yet, the demonstrations, in spite of the goodwill of many people at them, the demonstrations, too many places have turned to rioting and looting. Too many places have been turned over to Antifa-like organizations. And everywhere, almost everywhere at least, Black Lives Matter is dominant. Now, again, nobody looks at who Black Lives Matter is. Black Lives Matter is. There's no reporting about who Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter is. There's no investigations about who they are. If they were a right-wing organization, they would be all over them in terms of investigative reporting. And what we discover is that Black Lives Matter is a radical leftist organization with horrible, horrific ideas. And I've done a whole show of that, so I'm not going to repeat myself. And yet nobody cares. You wouldn't march, and I've condemned anybody who would march with white supremacists. That's why I don't believe there were any good people in Charlottesville. You wouldn't march with Nazis. That's why I don't believe there were any good people in Charlottesville. Now, I don't think BLM is quite as bad as Nazis and white supremacists, but they're damn close. Way too close for comfort. And you shouldn't march with them. If you can find a way to march without being associated with BLM, then go ahead and march. Go ahead and protest what should be protested. That is, the actions, the, the, the immoral, violent actions of the police. But now with these guys, not under their auspices, not under their banner, Now, what is all this going to lead us to? I just don't see anything positive. Is racism going to be dealt with by legislation? Well, how? If anything, racism is increasing right now, both on the right and on the left. There are people who hate these demonstrators. And the people are turning more and more racist. And then... So suddenly, white supremacists, this is a field day for them. How are you going to cure that? They talk about doing away with systemic racism. Well, how? By creating other systemic racism? By identifying people as white and black and taking money from whites and giving it to blacks? That's going to solve problems? You cannot solve a problem by violating people's rights. You cannot solve a problem by creating bigger problems. It is absolutely immoral. Reparations are not going to do anything. I mean, we've had, not exactly reparations, but we've had a war on poverty for 40 plus years, which is, much of that money has gone to minority communities. Has it made anybody there rich? Has anybody there really benefited from them, from the war on poverty? Has the welfare state benefited any of these communities, any of these individuals? Is the world a better place for having a war in poverty and a welfare state? No. No.
So what laws are they going to pass? What are they going to do exactly? You know, I, I saw that I, I did this video yesterday about about um, you know uh, uh, systemic racism. One of the arguments there is discrimination in housing. Well, now it's illegal to discriminate in housing. There are laws against discrimination. It's illegal to discriminate in schools. It's illegal to discriminate in workplaces. Things that generally I oppose as law. Well, I oppose discrimination. I oppose discrimination as law, anti-discrimination as law. But it's in the law. What more are you going to do to destroy systemic racism? Are the police going to be better trained? Really? I doubt it. Are the police going to hire better people? Why? I mean, they're going to get less money, not more money. Are we going to do the? Th- are we going to do away with things that really do corrupt police and maybe attract the worst kind of policemen into the police force, like the war on drugs or the war on immigrants? No, we're not going to do away with any of those. Certainly not the war on drugs. Not a Republican, not a Democrat. Nobody's going to do away with that. And let me tell you this: as long as you have a war on drugs. You can have a corrupt police force. As long as you have a corrupt police force, you're going to get crazy cops. You're going to get corrupt cops. They're going to do nasty things. But nobody's advocating for that. They want to defund the police. They want to get rid of the police. What's that going to give us? What's the solution? One solution. So all of this is going to do, it's going to tear this country apart even worse. On the left, Black Lives Matter is going to solidify itself as a major, major voice of the left. Thank you, James. That's very generous. On the right, I see racism on the rise as a response to the Black Lives Matter-like rhetoric and to the looting and to the rioting. I see the party, the country split apart more. It doesn't matter if Trump wins elections, Biden wins the election. I think the chances of Biden winning have gotten up. But I'm not sure. I'm not good at political forecasts. But what I can tell you is that there are no solutions out there. Nobody's presenting solutions. Nobody's attempting to make the world a better place. Nobody's got a program for making the world a better place. Nobody's got a program for ending racism. Nobody's got a program for making our cops better. Nobody's got a program for making our cops more accountable. I mean, one of the things you could do is take away immunity, legal immunity. Is anybody proposing that other than Justin Amash? There are things you could do. And as I said, is anybody proposing doing away with the war on drugs? No. Is anybody proposing what really is the cure for capitalism long term? And that is to move to capitalism, to free up markets, to deregulate, to let people make choices about who to hire and who not to hire, to get rid of the discriminative laws at universities and businesses that exist today that discriminate against people who happen to be in the majority. Why not let people actually, you know, be placed based on merit? 
his affirmative action, 50 years of affirmative action, made that big of a difference? Well, if it has, then why are there demonstrations in the street? If it has, why do we see complaints about systemic racism? If those kind of laws, if reverse racism works, why hasn't it worked? If laws that hand people money worked, then why hasn't the welfare state worked? And it hasn't. Because look at the complaints people are complaining about. Same thing they've always. Inequality, poverty, racism, discrimination. And yet, we live in a world, I think, that put aside the last few years where I think the right, where people have gotten much worse. But we live in a world in which racism was on decline. And if not for the left's insistence on identity politics, I think racism would be significantly diminished today. I think it is the left that is responsible for its reassertion as a force in American, in American life. That is racism. They gave it life through their identity politics. They're identifying individuals' identity based on their race. Not being racists. They rejuvenated it, academically of all places. If not for the welfare state, black Americans were doing far better economically before the welfare state kicked in than after the welfare state. Indeed, their progress to middle class was halted by these programs of giving them cash, which created all kinds of disincentives. So is anybody advocating for doing away with all those? For stopping identity politics? For increasing capitalism and freedom? For bringing reason back into the debate? For actually having a discussion about the problems in this country and finding real solutions? rather than pretend solutions and make people feel good, but have no consequences. There's no, nobody's presenting solutions out there. Mumbo-jumbo on the left basically is advocacy for socialism, and on the right, law and order, because all they know is a fist. All they know is a gun. But they have no solution to actual problems. I mean, imagine if Donald Trump actually presented new legislation to, I don't know, to move us towards a better police force or did something that suggested that he recognized there's a problem and was going to do something about it instead of bring troops that are supposed to fight overseas and blow things up and destroy stuff bring them into American cities that'll work that'll be great all right let us look at the super chat questions um Here's one that's relevant. I think the case could be made that affirmative action laws and anti-discrimination laws perpetrate racial bias, racism, or maybe make it worse. What do you think? I agree. I, I think it does. I think, I think it creates resentment. It creates hatred. It creates a sense of injustice on both sides, by the way, the side that benefits and the side that is harmed by it. And I think it perpetuates. It doesn't allow, in a sense, the market to clear out the junk, the market to penalize those who are racist. And it creates a sense of frustration. It has for decades. It, it, it's perpetuated the, the white racism. And then identity politics was all you needed to really ignite it. And that's what you're seeing in the last few years. 
It's why racism, I do think, is on the rise in the last few years. After decades of decline, significant decline. But on a plus note, I'll just say this on a plus note. And, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that a younger generation, the, the generation that's today between 16 and 30, there's a lot less racism than there was. I, I just think they grew up in a different era. Now, again, I think they become racist because they are taught identity politics. They go to the universities not being racist, and they come out of it being racist. Now, I know today it's common to say that you can only be a racist if you're being oppressed, then that a majority cannot be that a minority can't be racist against a majority. Now, that's bullshit. The, 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 the definition of racism is, is treating somebody based on their genetics, color of their skin, their so-called race attribution, their whatever, right? So identity politics, the leftist the whole agenda around racial studies and all that is a racist agenda. All right. Uh, Writing and violence aside, do you think it is good that Americans are talking about these issues and do you see any good coming of it? I think it's good that people are talking about these issues, but what are they talking about and what solutions are presented to them and what solutions are they presenting? Are they just talking? Or is there actually conversation going on? Is there actually reason conversation going on? If there was, then I think it was good, but I'm not convinced of that. I think it's just a lot of yelling and screaming like I do, I guess, but mine is reasoned. A lot of emotionalist arguments, a lot of bad proposals, a lot of racist racism. So, I mean, under, I mean, I'm hoping that in the margins, the better people, this is causing them to think about racism, causing them to consider these ideas, and, and, and some good will come of that. But I'm just not convinced of that. Because I don't see proposals that make any sense to deal with any of the real problems that are being, being put forward. And indeed, all I see, and this is my depressing conclusion, all I see is a movement towards more authoritarianism, both because of COVID and the response to that and the acceptance of the public, and now because of, of this and, and the response to it and the acceptance and the counter-response and, and, and bringing the military and whatever. It all seems to me Generally, the culture is moving towards more authoritarianism, more looking for Washington for answers, more looking for top-down authoritarian solutions to problems. That's what the de- many of the demonstrators are demanding. Michael, thank you for the contribution. That's fantastic. And you just and and so really, authoritarianism is becoming much more real for, to me in terms of the future of America. And, and we need to fight it. We need to fight it. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate what you wrote. All right. Do you think the police are actually worse recently or just being exposed now because of the prevalence of the videos? I think they're just being exposed now. I don't think they're worse. I think they were much worse, certainly in the South, 40, 50 years ago. I think they probably actually improved. My guess is that unarmed police shootings have declined I think the police are better today. I think they could be a lot better than they are, but I think they, they're better today. 
Somebody says many, poli- many people are just Bayesians, not racist. Bayesians means they're probabilistic thinkers. People couldn't, I mean, I don't know anybody out there who thinks probabilistic, that's an exaggeration. Very few people know how to think probabilistically. Very few people know how to apply statistics to simple things. Never mind the decision about human beings. And no, I think Bayesianism is a cover and an excuse for racists. They use so-called statistics, which they don't understand, and they couldn't defend if their life depended on it, as an excuse for their racism. Uh, so no, I think police are actually better. Does Jordan Peterson overrate the value of being physically organized, making one's bed? Isn't the value of being mentally organized greater? Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't pay much attention to, this, to Peterson's concrete advice. I think it's not particularly... I mean, for me, it's not particularly useful. I don't make my bed. I've never made my bed in my entire life. My mother used to get after me about not making my bed. Luckily, my wife doesn't because she doesn't make the bed either. So the bed is not made up. So what? Who cares? What's important is that you're mentally organized. What's importantly is you're mentally in control. What's importantly is you exercise your free will. What's important is you choose your values carefully and in a hierarchy. And you don't need an organized room, an organized office, an organized desk to do that. Indeed, most of the professors I know, most of the the good thinkers I know are not necessarily the most organized people in the world. So yes, I mean, I understand that Jordan's appealing to a young crowd that has never been told, has never been, nothing's been demanded of them. And he's starting with simple examples like make your bed, stand up straight. My mother used to tell me, make your bed, stand up straight every single day of my life. It only made me want to rebel. It only made me less likely to make my bed and more likely to slouch. I guess kids don't grow up with that anymore. And and what what Jordan Peterson is trying to do is is bring some expectations to young adults who don't have any expectations on them and take no responsibility for their lives. So I commend him for doing that. Although, again, I think he could have used better examples. Um, are we about to see a shooting war break out between AOC's progressives and Trump's nationalists and Tifa versus Boogaloo boys? I think the Boogaloo boys are, I don't, are they term nationalists? I just heard the term the other day and they claim to be not political and not of the right. I don't know if that's true. Boogaloo boys. Have you guys heard of Boogaloo boys? I'll have to read up on Boogaloo boys. I know I don't think there's going to be a shooting war. I really don't. I, I don't think either party is committed enough to their views. I don't think either party is brave enough to launch a revolution, which is what you'd be talking about. I think we're not quite there yet. I don't think either one of them, as long as Trump is president, the nationalists are not going to go out into the streets. And uh, I just don't see the progressives launching. I mean, this is as close to a revolution as you're going to see. So, no, I'm not pessimistic in that sense. I'm much more, you know... You should all read Ominous Parallels by Lena Peikoff. But look, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, in Germany, the communists and the, and the fascists, if you will, fought in the streets constantly. There were riots and demonstrations and riots and demonstrations and nationalists and communists and da-da-da-da and everybody. 
And people in the middle were like, eh, you know, these are the extremes and the fighting. And, and, and one of the reasons was nobody expected one of the extremes to dominate was because the other extreme would correct them. And what happened in Germany and what happens many times is these people don't actually have ideas that they hold. And when the right kind of authoritarian leader comes, they switch groups. The communists become fascists, the fascists become communists. Because they never really believed in it, they were just in it for the thuggery. And now they have organized thuggery, they can join the SS or something. They can, they can be sanctioned by the state. So the fact that there's AOC people and Trump people, all I see is authoritarians. Now, authoritarianism could come from the left or it could come from the right. But you know what? All the authoritarians are going to unite behind the authoritarian. It doesn't matter if it's a left or a right. They'll find a way. They'll find a language. They'll find a way to manipulate it into something that unites the authoritarians of left or right. I've often in the past thought that the way that would happen would be a religious fanatic who's also an environmentalist who would unite the left and the religious right under the banner of Jesus and saving the planet. And they would both buy into it. Because the environmentalists are religious, just their religion happens to be about Mother Nature or whatever. But, but. And the religionists are all about sacrifice. And they will unite over the sacrifice and over the mysticism and not worry about the details. Now, that's one option, but there are very many other options. It could be, you know, racism could be part of it. It could be an anti-racist authoritarianism coming from the right and therefore attracting people from the left. It could be environmentalism thrown in there as well. Who knows? But there will be some character, not Trump. He's too pathetic and too weak and too bleh. Yeah, it would have to be somebody strong, charismatic, articulate, uniting, but uniting over the wrong things. So I, I, I think it's authoritarianism I dread, not civil war. Rand said the U.S. government should deal with USSR very strongly or not at all. The New York Times chose to pragmatically appease its bullies. Why doesn't that work? Appeasing your bullies? Because it makes the bullies stronger. It makes the bullies more, you know, uh, more likely to do worse and worse things because there's no cost to pay. The idea that slavery is America's original sin seems to be growing in popularity. Can you unpack what's wrong with this conception? Well, I mean, you, you, we have to accept that there's a sense in which that conception is true. It is an original sin. It's an original sin at the founding. Now, I know uh, uh, Brad Thompson doesn't agree with me. He thinks it was inevitable, and given the context of the time, it had to be. No, I, I think Jefferson and Washington and others who kept slaves need to be called for it, and they need to be it needs to be said that they did something immoral. They were inconsistent. They were inconsistent heroes. And I think the founding of America, the greatest political event in all of human history, 
the most important political event in most all of human history. The first moral country to be established on the basis of moral principle. All of that is true. And yet it was flawed from the beginning. With slavery. It was. But that sin was paid for. It was paid for with the lives of 600,000 young Americans. It was paid for with the lives, the, 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 the cost of a horrific civil war that dismantled slavery. And there was a real opportunity at that point, real opportunity at that point, to rid America of that stain. And unfortunately, in spite of getting rid of slavery, they didn't go all the way. And, then, and they imposed Jim Crow laws, and they imposed other things that brought back that sin. Not quite in, the most, in its most virulent, evil way, but in pretty evil ways. Pretty disgusting, awful ways. And there's no question that the whole issue of racism is a stain on America, on the greatest country in human history. That has a stain. It's not perfect. I wish it was. I mean, there are other stains, but that certainly is a stain. So let's not deny or reject that. Let's embrace that. It is the deck the Declaration of Independence and the founders' ideas that made it possible for slavery to be eradicated from the world. It is those documents that motivated the anti-slavery movement that ultimately led to the election of Lincoln to president, that ultimately led to his embrace of a civil war, ultimately to free the slaves and to get rid of the stain on America. And yeah, every country has experienced slavery. Almost every country, not every country. Literally not every country has experienced slavery. But most, and throughout history, slavery has been a part of humanity. And it's very important to note that it is the Declaration of Independence and capitalism, the system based on the Declaration of Independence, that eradicated slavery from the world. So without the founders, there would be no, there would still be slaves. Without capitalism, there would still be slavery. So we have to get, give due, with, you know, to give proper due to what made slavery go away, capitalism and the founding fathers. Even though there was a sin and there was a stain, and those have to be remembered as things we should never do again, things that were fixed to some extent and we should never experience again. So I'm not one who says, um, you've, uh, you've got to defend the funny fathers no matter what. Funny fathers, are, you know, they're not perfect. They weren't perfect. They made mistakes. This is one of them. And maybe they had to make this compromise because otherwise they wouldn't be United States of America. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Okay. And then we paid a price, 600,000 lives. Young people. Young people. 600,000. Does capitalism always end up getting replaced by different levels of socialism, like Venezuela and many others? Does this mean that capitalism is weak? No. Venezuela never had capitalism. Capitalism is an unknown ideal. We've never had it, so we don't know if it would be replaced. We don't know if it would decay because it's never been done. We came close in America, 
but we didn't go all the way. And the reason we didn't go all the way and the reason it decayed is because we never built the moral foundation, the ethical foundation for capitalism. We never embraced self-interest. We never embraced egoism and selfishness. So it's never truly been tried, not properly. Hong Kong is the second place that it was, came the closest. And Hong Kong has not become socialist, and America has not yet become socialist. But you cannot conclude from those examples that capitalism inevitably becomes socialism. Capitalism has never been manifest fully, one. And two, capitalism has never been manifest. It's never come into being on the proper foundation, which is a moral foundation. As long as the morality of altruism is alive and dominant, dominant, capitalism must turn into socialism, yes. As long as altruism is alive, capitalism and, and dominant, capitalism cannot be successful. Ethics trumps economics every single time. I'll say it again. As long as altruism is alive, capitalism is doomed to fail. As long as altruism is alive, human life is doomed to be lived in misery. And not alive, dominant, because it can still be alive, but crushed by egoism. So our battle is not for capitalism. It's for egoism. And it's not for egoism. It's ultimately for reason. How do you cut through the rhetoric when the age is so emotional? Politicians, thinkers, health experts, everybody leads with emotion, not reason. You have to look beyond that. You have to read. You have to listen to multiple points of view. You have to think. You have to accumulate evidence. You have to find better commentators who are more rational, more reasonable. I have a collection of people I follow on different issues and cultural issues and political issues and economic issues who I think are more reasonable. And I don't, I don't let the emotion of people sway me. I try to look for the facts and the evidence and the reality of what's actually going on. All right, three last questions. Thanks for the Michael Jordan documentary recommendations, recommendation. It's not a basketball, I'm not a basketball fan, but I was inspired and a great break from the craziness. Good. I'm glad you really enjoyed it. That, that's great. Yeah, it was, it was a really good documentary. If the U.S. ever got, get to the point of authoritarianism, what issue do you think is most likely to rally people to having their rights squashed? Uh, well, I've said uh, religion, nationalism, um, you know, in the past, I thought that what will bring about uh, authoritarianism is multiple terrorist attacks and a weak response by uh, the America and just a, a sense among American people that terrorism was out of control and you needed a strong man to, to, to... So law and order, law and order is a good issue for people to rally around. Um, the world is coming to an end. We need to do something is a good issue to rally around. And that world is coming to an end. Could be riots, could be terrorism, could be global warming. It could be the second coming. I don't know. It could be anything. But what? And, and Trump is very good at this. Not as good as the ultimate authoritarian will be. But Trump is very good at this. It's the Chinese are coming. The Mexicans are coming. Mexicans are invading those evil immig immigrants. They're, they're destroying this country and we've got to do something. We're to rally together around the, uh, around, uh, you know, with a flag. Now, I don't think it'll be immigrants in and of itself because too many Americans are immigrants. So it's hard to rally everybody around that as a cause. 
I think it's, I think it's either terrorism, riots, civil unrest. Um, it could be a combination of civil unrest and a pandemic one day. Uh, it could be, yeah, a breakdown of civilization, which results in riots in some way or another. Or it could be some perceived environmental catastrophe. But there has to be a catastrophe. It could be economic. The economy's going to hell. We need to do something. We need to give the president more to- power to do something. Or it could be a slow grind, which is m- maybe more likely. A slow grind. I mean, think of how many people this time around in America were, were allowed their rights to be squashed in the name of an overreaction to a virus. So it could be gradual because the American people are losing losing this sense, sense of life that is oriented around freedom. Okay, last question. I think the average person wants to be good, but they have no idea what good is. Absolutely, I agree. What does one approach? How does one approach the average person with the right viewpoint without sounding like you are from a different planet? Well, you have to do it in the context of their values. What is it that you want in life? What is it that you... Pa- that you value in life? What, is the, what are the things that are most important for you in life? And then show them that those values are egoistic. And then show them that those values are best attained through freedom. So the way to address these issues is through the values of the person you're speaking to. The things that they really care about. Most people care about, at least at some extent, the right things. Some of their values are good values. Not all, but some of them are. And then, of course, you know, Christopher says, lead by example. Yeah, and then, of course, the most important part is live the best life you can live. Be happy. Be successful. And, 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 and then have co- people come up to you and say, how do you pull it off? How do you maintain? How, how, do you, how are you so happy, positive, successful? What's the secret? And that's a good opener. All right. Uh, quick reminder about tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm interviewing uh, Matt Ridley, the author of How Innovation Works. Uh, it should be a fun interview. The first one certainly was. A lot of you I know watched that interview and, and seem to enjoy it. I hope you'll watch it tomorrow. It'll be on live, and I will be taking Super Chat questions. So please, if you can, it's a little early, 12 o'clock Eastern Time tomorrow, 12, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, but uh, I'd love to get some Super Chat questions for Matt. I think that will be fun for me and for him. Uh, it will go for about an hour, an hour and 15, max. Um, remind you to uh, subscribe. We're getting close to 20,000. I'd like to get to 20,000 in the next couple of weeks. That would be, that, that, well, not in the next couple of weeks. I don't think we quite make that. But, but hopefully soon we can get to 20,000. So uh, certainly, you know, by the end of the month or certainly by the end of July. So help us do that. And, uh, you know, support the show. If, you've, if you get value from this, we'd love to... Get value in return. And, and uh, the, the Super Chat questions are a great way to, to uh, express your value for the show and to support the show. And, of course, you can also do so on your runbookshow.com slash support. So thank you. Thank you for all of you who make this show possible. Thank you for all of you who show up, many of you almost every day to listen to me and uh, who share the show, who like the show, who help the YouTube and Facebook algorithms uh, uh, populate the show to the top. Uh, it's tough because the algorithms are set against us 
We all know this. They're not our friend. The algorithms are not our friend given the radicalness of our ideas. That's why I need your help. You are the only people who can get us beyond the algorithms. Indeed, you're the only people who can help change the world. There's no way to change the world without you. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back tomorrow. Bye.